Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Today, we are going to be diving back into the book of Mark. Um, how many of you love history? How many of you? Just raise your hand. Okay, so look at the, hold your hand up. Look at the people around you. Those people are going to be miserable for the next 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> we got some history today, kids, uh, because one of the things, one of the least appreciated pages in the Bible is this page right here, the page between the Old Testament and New Testament. We kind of think, oh, well, you just flip the page, and all of a sudden, bam, we're in New Testament times. Actually, this page is 400 years of human history, and there is a ton that happens to the Jewish nation that prepares a lot uh, of, of uh, the background for Jesus' teaching, his work, his ministry, and so on. So we're going to spend 10 minutes encapsulating about 100 years of these 400 years. Right? There's going to be lots of dates and weird ancient names, but there is a point, dear friends. There is a point. So here we go. Woo! A guy named Alexander the Great conquers the known world anyway um, and wanted to turn the world to Greek. His project was a project called Hellenization. Uh, to, to Hellenize something was to turn it Greek and redefine it according to Greek value systems, Greek philosophy, so on, so on, so on. So he wasn't just conquering people militarily. He was wooing them into the Greek worldview. Oh, and by the way, we will have a time for Q&A at the end of this. If you want to text questions in, there's the number if you're wondering what text meant. There's the question line if you'd like to throw something out there. Now, in 323, Alexander dies very young, and his kingdom, his empire, is split three ways to those guys. Israel, or Judea as it was known back then, gets wrapped into uh, the Egyptian empire under Ptolemy. Now, next. In uh, 198, so we're counting down to zero, because we're talking B.C. or B.C.E., uh, Judea becomes part of the Seleucid Empire, and that becomes significant because in 176, we meet a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Go ahead and put that up there if you would. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes IV is literally the, one of the top five worst human beings that have ever walked the planet. Um, he ascends to the throne. Here's a picture Looks so good on the coinage. Remember, that was the propaganda of the time. Antiochus Epiphanes. So, so Antiochus took over the land of Judea, which we know as Israel. Uh, and one of the things he did is he opened himself up to be bribed for the position of high priest. Um, God has very specific <laughs> instructions about who the high priest should be, where the high priest should come from. But this guy um, was open for bribes. So... A guy named Jason attempts to become the high priest by bribing Antiochus. That reference is to 2 Maccabees. Now, I'm going to be referencing the book of 1 and 2 Maccabees. They're part of a, a, a section of literature called apocryphal literature um, that isn't a part of most Protestant Bibles, but the, the history in it is absolutely fascinating. In 171, somebody outbids Jason <laughs> to be the high priest, 
and Jason flees into the wilderness. Next. In 168, Antiochus focuses on invading Egypt, but ultimately he's restrained by Rome. A rumor spreads that he has died. So Jason, the first guy that tried to bribe him, comes out of hiding to try to overthrow the second guy who bribed him, and there's a little civil war that ensues. Now, Antiochus discovers this, and he interprets it as a Jewish revolt, even though the Jews were fighting each other. He begins a crackdown on all of the Jews who have refused to turn Greek. This is super important because here are the things that he does. He outlaws the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and burns them publicly. He prohibits circumcision and, in fact, commands circumcised Jewish males to reverse that. I don't even want to think about that. He ends the temple sacrifice. He commands an end to Sabbath observance. He appoints, as we've already seen, a Hellenized Jewish high priest, not somebody from the royal lines that the priest was supposed to come from. He sees the temple treasury to fight his war against Egypt. And then this one. Guys, I can't even begin to tell you the, how like, ridiculous this is. He sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal, in the temple complex to Zeus. In fact, Daniel 7 calls this guy the abomination of desolation. That's how huge a role he has in the Jewish imagination. Now, not shockingly, the Jews did not take kindly to this program. In fact, there's an account in 1 Maccabees about a dad named uh, Mattathias. Mattathias has five sons. Mattathias is being commanded as the leader of a little town to come and sacrifice on an altar of gold to Zeus. He is Jewish, he is not Hellenized, he's not succumbed to Greek pressure. He refuses to offer that sacrifice. Another Jewish person who was Hellenized says, well, I'll do it instead. Mattathias kills that guy and then kills the officials. And he and his sons run into the countryside and they began a guerrilla war called the First Jewish Revolt, the Maccabean Revolt. They became known as the Maccabees because that is the word for the hammer. And they were the first hammer blow against the foreign oppressors. And so you can understand. And then the, the rest of First Maccabees, we go from Mattathias to Judas uh, Maccabee, not Judas, Judah, and then Simon Maccabee, the, the five sons. We go through the five sons, and the book's incredibly complicated, and there are allegiances and double crosses, and it's crazy. But in 164, Antiochus dies. And one of the things that happens is Judah Maccabee is able to reclaim the temple for the first time since it had been desecrated by the pig. And the fighting around Jerusalem was happening in the fall, so the Jews had to postpone a fall festival called Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths. And they get into the Jerusalem, they cleanse the temple, and the, the, the um, holiday, Hanukkah, comes from the fact that they had just a little bit of oil to light the lamps of the temple, but that oil lasted eight days. The reason the eight days is significant is because they celebrated that fall festival Late, they couldn't do it in the fall because they were fighting, but when they got Jerusalem, they celebrated that fall festival for eight days. And so the reason, the miracle of light of Hanukkah, is that this little bit of oil lasted for eight days, which was the length of the festival. Are you with me? Wow. Now, 
The reason that festival is significant is because one of the things that you do during that festival is you thank God for the harvest. And the way you do that is wave palm branches. Okay? Mmm, somebody says. Hmm, I wonder if we're going to read about palm branches here in just a little bit. Hmm, next. At 142, 142, civil war breaks out again among Alexander's like generals. Both sides attempt to get the help of the Jewish rebels. But Simon, the last uh, son of Mattathias, he negotiates the independence of the Jewish people. And then uh, about a 60 to 80 year reign of Jewish independence begins called the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, for our purposes... Simon, once this treaty is signed, enters into Jerusalem. And I want you to read from 1 Maccabees the account of him entering into Jerusalem, all right? Simon's men entered the citadel on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171 with utterance of praise and what? And to the music of, of lyres and cymbals and lutes and hymns and songs because a great enemy had been smashed and driven out of Israel. He decreed that that day be observed annually with rejoicing. Now, why did they use palm branches? Well, because Simon's older brother, Judah, delivered Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and they celebrated that eight-day festival and were waving palm branches. So palm branches became the symbol of military victory over the oppressors. So when Simon comes in, finally getting rid of the Greeks for all time, what do they wave at Simon? Palm branches, because that was the symbol of military victory over military oppression. In fact, there were coins minted during that time, and the palm branch is foremost among them. It became a symbol of Jewish independence and Jewish freedom. Are you with me? Okay, you survived the history. Fantastic. Let's go to the book of Mark. All right, the book of Mark. I wonder what episode we'll be reading. Hmm. Hmm. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Remember, it's, Mark's broken into three acts. Act 1, who is Jesus around the Galilee? Act 2, what does it mean that he's the Messiah as they're going to Jerusalem? Now we're in Act 3. How does Jesus become enthroned as the Christ? This all takes place around Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or Bethpage, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. And then there's this little phrase, which no one has ever ridden. Now, the reason that phrase is significant is because we're about to look at a piece of Old Testament text that talks about how a king will enter Jerusalem. And, and there are examples in the Old Testament of kingly figures riding donkeys, okay? So the donkey wasn't the surprise. Whenever a king would ride an animal, the animal always had to be ridden only by the king. So the little detail that says, and no one had ridden on it, means that Jesus is very self-awarely showing himself as a kingly figure, right? And that comes more specific when he says, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. Not Jesus need it, not I need it, but the Lord. And I will send it back here shortly. Notice Jesus here is driving the action forward. He's not passive. He's not a victim. He is doing something very specific. 
So they went out and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people were standing there and asked, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. Now, Jesus has been walking everywhere for 11 chapters. So it's significant that now he's writing something in Jerusalem. So he's very conscious of what he's doing. He is fulfilling a picture uh, given to us in Zechariah chapter 9, which I know some of us are familiar with, but let's look at it. Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your what? Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that's verse 9. Verse 10, though, says the significance of the donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. So if you take away chariots, war horses, and bows, what are you bringing to the city? You're bringing peace. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, this, he's all doing this very consciously. A colt that no one has ridden, he will now sit upon when he's been walking everywhere. Everyone knows the Zechariah 9 thing. So what's Jesus saying to people? I am the king returning. Absolutely. People didn't miss this, but notice how they react. Verse 8 of Mark 11. Many people saw this and spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches. And we know from the other Gospels it's palm branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. Now, why palm branches, ladies and gentlemen? Military victory over our adversaries, right? We did it. When Judah did it, we did it. When Simon did it, and so of course, Jesus riding a colt, we've just heard he rose somebody from the dead, or raised somebody from the dead, down the street. Like, this is a big deal. This is when the Lord is returning to Zion in victory. So of course, they follow the Maccabean script. We'll put our cloaks down, we'll wave palm branches, and then notice what they shout. They shout, Hosanna, which... Isn't a great song lyric? The, the word literally means save us. And do you think save us means take us to heaven or save us from our oppressors? It is literally save us from our oppressors. And then they quote Psalm 118, which is the entire psalm is about God delivering his people through military victory. They say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. So what are they saying? We see you, Jesus, in the same way we saw Judah, we saw Simon, you're coming to deal with Rome. The oppressors, and a long list of oppressors, they're just the current version. Are you with me on this point? This is a really big point. The palm branches aren't just random. Like, hey guys, what are we going to wave? You know, corn? Nope, this is not the Midwest. We got palms, so let's wave some palms. No! They grabbed the palms because they were hoping that Jesus would come and bring peace. And how would he bring peace? Through the destruction of Rome. Are you with me? 
So they even shout, God, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is a massive amount of buildup in the book of Mark. And then notice how underwhelming this next section is. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, I don't know. That seems a little anticlimactic. Well, guys, we lost daylight savings time, so we got to, I mean, I don't, what? This is so weird. But these details, even though we skip over them in English, like there's stuff here. So when it says that Jesus went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything, okay, that phrase is borrowed from the Old Testament scriptures when God examines his nation to see if it's fruitful. All right? And we're going to see that in just a second. So we went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, this next section we want to read as a separate section, but it's not. We're still talking about the same thing. And we're going to do another Mark sandwich. If you're new, Mark has this literary technique where he will bracket a section of material with two parallel references. Sometimes it'll be an Old Testament quote and an Old Testament quote followed, or, and bracketing a bunch of material in the middle. Sometimes it's the healing of a blind man, healing of a blind man, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. This time it's going to be a fig tree, a fig tree, then he's going to do something with the temple. Every time he does that sandwich kind of thing, the, 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 the bread of the sandwich explains what's in the middle of it. All right? So we're going to read about a fig tree, and you're going to feel bad about the fig tree, but we'll understand what's happening here in a second. Verse 12, are you okay? Are you with me? This, we're swimming in some deep waters, guys, and it's going to get worse. I'm sorry. Verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree, and then what's it say? In leaf. So it means it promised fruit. He went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, in the last service, people were like, dude, how can he expect to find figs if it's not the season for figs? The answer is because it was in leaf. It promised fruit, but had none. That's the image. Then Jesus said to the tree, well, before we get to the tree, in the Old Testament, the image of God as a farmer or vine dresser examining Israel as a vineyard or a field, that is such a common picture. So I want to show you two pictures, one from Isaiah, one from Micah, that talk about how Yahweh examines the nation of Israel for fruit. What Jesus is doing with the fig tree is a picture of what he's about to do with the temple. The fig tree in the Old Testament was often used to stand for Israel. Okay? So it's not just Jesus is hangry and he's about to get angry at a fig tree. It's he's enacting a parable that's going to explain what he's about to do. So here's Isaiah. I will sing for the one I love. This is God speaking. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. 
He dug it up, cleared it of the stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it. In other words, God prepared Israel to be a fruitful vineyard. Next. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded what? Only bad fruit. So again, that idea, he looked at it for fruit, and there wasn't any. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between myself and my vineyard, or me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked, there's that word again, for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. Talking about the exile. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And then what was he looking for? When he looked for fruit, what was the fruit he was looking for? What's it say? He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. And he looks for righteousness, it's the same word in Hebrew, but heard cries of distress. Okay, so are you, stick with me. I know this is thick. God pictures himself as a cultivator of a vineyard. Israel's the vineyard. He looks at the vineyard to see if there's good fruit, but there isn't good fruit. And so he makes the vineyard no longer productive. You with me so far? What was the fruit he was looking for? The fruit he was looking for was justice and righteousness all over the Old Testament. And because he didn't find that fruit, right, he curses the vineyard. Okay, now here's the next picture from Micah. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, but there is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early what? Figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. So do you see the two parallels? God comes and looks for fruit. What's the fruit he's looking for? Justice and righteousness. When he doesn't see it, he curses, metaphorically, the nation. Jesus comes up to a fig tree that promises fruit, but there isn't any. So what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree straight out of the Yahweh playbook. He looked, at the he looked at the tree and said to his disciples, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. So Jesus comes into the temple and looks, looks around. And we're like, huh, was he just checking in to see, like, was it busy? No, he was examining it for fruit. How do we know that's what he was doing? Because the next day he sees a fig tree, a fig tree standing for Israel. It should have fruit because it's in leaf, even though it's not the time for figs, but it's in leaf, but it doesn't have fruit, so he curses it. This is straight out of what Yahweh does. Are you with me so far? Now, we think then something different is happening. It says, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Now look at me for a second. It was allowed to buy and sell in the temple. You had to. So you had non-approved currency that had to be exchanged for Hebrew currency. 
right? The buying and selling was something that had to happen. So he's not condemning the buying and selling. You'll see what he's condemning in just a second. But he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. You had to buy doves to offer them. So again, he's not condemning the fact that you had to buy doves. He's doing something much more radical. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. So essentially, he shut it down. Now, what did he do to the fig tree? Shut it down. What's he doing in the temple? Shutting it down. The fig tree explains what he's doing here. Then he taught them. And he said, is it not written, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations? And we could spend a whole teaching on this Isaiah 56 passage. But the big one is the hammer blow, where he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. All right, now, we have one more Old Testament text. You guys can do it. All right, we got to look at this Jeremiah passage. Because when he says den of robbers, that doesn't mean like it's a hideout for the bad guys. It means something far worse. All right, so let's go to Jeremiah. Hey, Jeremiah, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gates of the Lord's house. What's that? It's the Lord's house. The temple, exactly. And there proclaim this message. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship Yahweh. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of Yahweh, this is the temple of Yahweh, this is the temple of Yahweh. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other, what? If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I will give your ancestors forever and ever. But look, You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then come into this house and stand before me, which bears my name, and say, we are safe because this is the temple? That we're safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now, in this instance, what is a den of robbers? A den of robbers are the people who act unjustly and corruptly, but think because they're in the temple, they're safe. Are you with me? Oof. How many Christians walk around with their tickets to heaven, treat each other horribly, and think, I am safe? So, here comes Jesus, the showdown. He purposefully, consciously gets on the colt that's never been ridden in fulfillment of the Zechariah passage. And the Zechariah passage promises peace. And the only way Israel can imagine peace coming is the same way it came through the Maccabees, through military victory. So, what are we going to do? We pull down palm branches, and we sing psalms of military victory. Jesus doesn't rebuke them, but he goes to the temple, and what's he do? He looks around. 
The next day, and we don't know what looks around means until the next day when he's walking by a fig tree, symbol of Israel, and he goes up and he looks at it to see if it had any fruit. It didn't, so he cursed it. Then he wanders into the temple, shuts it down, and accuses not the temple, but its leadership of being complacent with corruption and injustice because they're in the temple and they think they're safe. Then, <laughs> verse 18, the, the chief priests and the teachers heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. <laughs> yeah, the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching, but when evening came, Jesus and disciples went out of the city. In the next morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. That is completely decimated. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, in a chapter from now, the disciples are going to say about the temple, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And then this, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down. From the roots, the temple is now dispensed with. And Jesus presents himself, obviously, as the new temple, yes. But I want us to feel the weight of this. So let's just review again. He walks in in a very kingly way. They only can imagine peace coming through military might. So, of course, they welcome him as they welcome the Maccabeans. Jesus examines the temple for fruit and finds it lacking. How do we know? Because the next day he examined a fig tree that promised fruit but didn't have it. He curses it. That curse explains what he's about to do at the temple. He shuts it down and says, the corruption, this has become a haven for exploiters. Because you think you can say, this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple, and it doesn't matter how you treat anyone else. They head back home. Hey, look, the fig tree is withered from the root. And then in two chapters, Jesus says, yep, this temple will not be left standing. So a couple of thoughts that occur to me before we get into a couple questions, if you want. The first thought is what is the fruit that Jesus was looking for? We think the fruit is a good creedal confession or great singing or a killer sermon series, man. Or having the right beliefs and making sure everyone knows how right we are. The fruit Jesus is looking for is almost entirely spelled out in terms of justice. And it is one of the most demonic things in our world that any talk of, ju of justice has now entered into the conservative political or uh, liberal any talk of justice has entered into the nonsense of the continuum between Democratic and Republican. That justice is somehow woke or liberal or progressive or whatever. And there are expressions that aren't biblically aligned, of course. But justice is the very root of God's work in the world. 
God's work isn't just saving souls into heaven, it's bringing shalom for the flourishing of human persons. And so there is this just, and so I'm just struck (laughs) because the second reflection I have is if God was willing to tear the house that he built down because of its corruption, should we be surprised that the American church is being judged and found wanting in entirely and precisely the same way? When there's so much corruption and perjury and adultery and greed, people look at the carnage of the church and think it's bad news. I happen to think it's great news. Because Jesus dispensed with the temple because he offered himself as a new one. So I personally am very excited that myself and so many other church leaders and so many other churches are just being exposed for the corrupt people that we are. So I think it's a good thing that every week we're reading. Now I think it's horrible that we're seeing so much harm and abuse and Oh, the sexual sin, I mean, it's, it's I, I don't even have words. But is that just society or is that the enemy? No. Because here's the thing that really made everyone PO'd. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to judge Rome. He went to Jerusalem to judge Israel. And we think the triumphal entry is about Jesus taking his rightful place and dealing with the people out there. The triumphal entry was about Jesus taking his rightful place and dealing with his people. So when I read it that way, it's a lot more threatening. Because I just want to say, well, that's a story about them back then and how they missed it. And it's really a story about how we miss it. How easily Jesus gets hijacked into our agendas And we welcome him as we welcome our saviors, politically, economically, militarily, however. So Jesus becomes just another cosmic whoever our hero is, dispensing power and justice to all the people we don't like. When he does come to bring peace, but it's not peace that way. So the biggest threat isn't the world out there. The biggest threat are people in the church that don't believe the way of Jesus really works. Because that's when we resort to the kinds of power and coercion that Jesus himself refused and called demonic. Any questions? Yes, sir. Can can I get you a mic real quick? Oh, no, I know, but we have people online. And I end... I know the question's going to be genius, so I want everyone to hear it. You know, I've been thinking about this because my, you know, I think about this. My wife and I are, are, are interestingly different, but we, you know, opposites attract, right? My <laughs> wife's a justice person. Yeah. I'm a righteousness person. And I guess to grow more as, a, as an individual, I thought, just listening to what you just laid out. Yeah. What is justice? Because I think it's different for everybody. Oh, I don't. You just mentioned that. And, but if, if that could be clear instead of subjective, but more objective, I guess, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I was just thinking about that. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm glad we got that on the mic. So just a couple of thoughts. And again, the reason we do the Q&A isn't because I'm some expert. I mean, as we'll see here shortly. 
But the reason we do the Q&A is because we honor the questions. And there is room in the community of faith for loads of people working this out together. So, it's interesting, in Hebrew, justice and righteousness are the same word. And they both mean the same thing, which is the promotion of shalom. Now, shalom is wholeness. It's not peace like in the absence of war, but it's peace when everything fits together as it was intended to and is in harmony. So injustice is when anything breaks the shalom of the community. So you can imagine, it's as, as much or as big as you can imagine. The work of justice is repairing the shalom when it's been broken. So Sometimes that involves individuals repenting to each other. Sometimes that involves rearranging structures, and this is straight out of the Bible. Like, there was an instance where there were Hebrew, and I don't remember who was not getting fed. I think it was the Hebrew widows were not getting fed, and the Greek widows were getting fed, and so they complained to the apostles, and they realized, oh, that was a structural thing, an injustice that was happening, and so they had to deal with it at a structural level. Or you have an instance in 1 Corinthians 11 where the church, the rich people were eating communion in a way that shamed the poor people. And so God says, actually, there are some of you who are falling asleep and dying because of this. You're like, oh. So God takes the shalom of his community very seriously. So the reason it can be seen as subjective is because shalom and the fracturing of it takes so many forms. Right? You can say something to me, you don't even think about it, but somehow that hurts. So on that minor scale to the genocides and all of the evil that we see in the world, the church is to be the place where we don't allow our differences to prohibit us from pursuing shalom together. So that can be construed in a lot of different ways. So if you mean by righteousness, my personal goodness and righteousness, absolutely that's a part of shalom. But the goal of my shalom is to contribute to the flourishing of the community. It's never just to be feeling shalom by myself. In fact, you can't feel shalom by yourself. And in fact, justice is always social because justice involves fracturing between two people. So, yeah, just chew on that. Let me know what you think. This is a great question. It's a great question. And it's really misunderstood, and that's why it gets politicized. Because if all we're going to say is, hey, the church should be the place where the shalom of God is flourishing, we'd all go, yes. But then you say, and the word for that is justice. And we'd go, ah. <laughs> and that's so unfortunate because it betrays the fact that we've been discipled by political categories rather than by biblical ones. You know? So we don't have to go into that anymore unless you'd like to. Anything else you want to talk about? We've got five or six minutes. Yes, Grant, look at this. Look at this. Hi. What would, the, what would the temple look like if it were fruitful at the time? Like, what was Jesus exactly looking for? Oh, so great. Okay. So, so particularly in Isaiah, um, God is always looking for justice slash righteousness. And in the Old Testament, justice slash righteousness was almost exclusively defined in terms of a vulnerable triad, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. So justice, a community of justice, took care of those people. 
So that's why there are so many economic laws in the Torah that have to do with, hey, leave food around the edge of your field, or let's celebrate Jubilee every 50 years, or let's have a Sabbath year where we don't do any. I mean, these were beautiful and magnificent pictures of the kind of shalom God wanted for his people. But when he looked for fruit, almost all of the condemnations of Israel, they, they had to do with idolatry, which led to injustice. Idolatry always leads you to injustice. It always does. It, it dehumanizes you, and then you dehumanize others. So all the categories have to do with that. And then when God measures justice, the fruit he's looking for is the care for the most vulnerable. As the vulnerable or oppressed within the body, because this is like something we're experiencing today, what, what is Jesus empowering, I guess, those with fruitful hearts to do in the, in the dominant culture of fruitlessness? What, do, what does he want us to do? Those oh, boy, that's, we could spend a whole hour on that, right? And you would probably better teach me, right? So... As a middle-aged white dude, I'll throw out a couple of thoughts, <laughs> and then I'll host the podcast later, because that's what we do as middle-aged white guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> part of the repentance that has to go on in the body is so deep and, it, and it's, so, it's so interesting because we resist it so much, it just shows what an idol it's become. Part of the repentance, um, I think, is listening, centering, paying attention. Uh, when other parts, I mean, Paul just tells us, when other parts are, are grieving in the body, we're to grieve with them. And the gospel has this dynamic that as churches we don't pay attention to. James picks this up, where James says, Woe to you rich people! You actually have the lowest position in the kingdom. Woe to you who are poor, you actually hold the highest. So the gospel creates a dynamic where those who are considered socially superior are brought low, and those that are considered socially inferior are brought up so that we might all participate as siblings around the Lord's table. So for the majority culture, we have to be on the lookout for all the dynamics that inhibit siblingship. And those are legion, right? As you would know better than I. For you, I mean, who am I to say? But my experience with um, Christianity outside of white American Protestantism has, that's where it's flourishing. So it, I personally think the white evangelical church needs to be evangelized by all the other churches. So it would be great if we could just sit and pay attention to all the work God's doing in other places. But again, people are going to hear that and say, oh, I, I don't like those words. Those are political words. And, and they're just not. This is what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what it means. So more to say. That's my first shot. Oh, well, well no, 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 no. You sound surprised, and you should be. I don't blame you at all for that. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. That's such a beautiful question. Because the goal isn't to inhabit a political identity. The goal is to inhabit the kingdom, which transcends all political identities, right? So we're going to have people in here who disagree on all kinds of political stuff. Great. 
Hallelujah. The church is the place where those disagreements are rendered secondary to the work that Jesus is, is doing in knitting us together into a commun- community of shalom. So hallelujah, let's fight about masks and let's fight about uh, politics. Great. But when that stuff becomes ultimate and then we begin acting out of fear and anger, that's when we behave so poorly. That's when Jesus comes lowly to us saying, this is not the way we bring peace. So good. All right, one more. Anything on the text line? We don't have to. Someone was asking about the term uh, abomination of desolation. Oh, wow. Right? And uh, here being used in, to, to refer to the, uh, to the sacrificing of the pig in the temple, but also how it, it reappears later on in the yes. book, right? Yes. Can you connect those two things together there? Yes. Listen to my podcast. No, so what the Bible does, and it's brilliant, is it takes concrete historical instances of oppression and then turns those into types that can be reused. So Babylon. Babylon was a city, built the Tower of Babel, that was Babylon, but then it becomes a picture of every empire that sets itself up against God. So Egypt gets called Babylon, Israel gets called Babylon, Rome gets called Babylon. So Babylon became, it's not only a historical instance, but it also became a picture of something that happens over and over and over again. Same with the abomination of desolation. He became the prototype of what it meant to oppress God's people. Great question. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We actually practice becoming a community of shalom. Here's the way that we do that. First of all, we're going to have a crew come up and we're going to sing together. We don't sing because that's what churches do. We sing to refresh our mouths and our imaginations around biblical words and categories and images. Second thing we do is we all go to the Lord's table. There are stations around the room where all of you are welcome to take the bread and the cup. No one has to get cleaned up first. No one has to get it figured out first. We all say yes to God's hospitality to us, and in turn, in eating the bread and the cup, promise to extend that same hospitality to each other. There's also a place where we pray for each other. There are sheets of paper where you can write down things, and as a community of Shalom, we pray for the pain that sits in this room. There's also a place where we practice justice through giving, not out of guilt, not because the church needs your money, none of those reasons, but because there has to be a place where we fight against the tyranny of mammon in our own lives, right? Never. If you sit in a church and they're guilting you for your money, flee. Because does the church need your money? Not at all, right? I can go back to modeling. It's not a problem. <laughs> but, in all, but in all seriousness, yes, for the lights and the budgets and stuff, sure, 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 all of that takes money. But does the church need money? No, not at all. So the reason we talk about giving is, A, Jesus warned us against the lure and pull of that on our lives. But it also, as a community of shalom, we each want to be people who contribute to the flourishing of others. And then lastly, we're a community that um, is comfortable with questions and tension and disagreement. 
And so we take the Lord's Supper and we do all of these things around people who aren't just like us. So let me pray and then we'll practice. Lord Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Lord, um, I confess how easily I want to receive you as I want you to be, not as who you are and how you come to me. And so Lord, would you rearrange our imaginations into biblical categories that see and receive your peace as it comes, not as we want it. And I do pray for the flourishing in our community, Lord. Show us where it is that we must walk well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.